So with uh, this is in with uh, after three full day of uh, meditation, and then we have another three full days. And I thought it could be a good opportunity to start with actually question and comments about the practice. Are there any questions, any comments about what we've done so far? Yes. When we ask a question, um, it's that at some particular experience or phenomenon, or is it asked in general, or is it both? Okay, actually, uh, I would say there are three different sides to this. Uh, traditionally, one of the ideas was to turn back the light onto oneself. So it's kind of like asking what is this, but more what is this human being in this moment, or what is the potential of this human being, or what is the Buddha nature of this human being. But because if you call it something, it's kind of, you get could stuck with it. That's why they say, what is this? But often they had this idea of turning back the light onto oneself. Another way to look at it was actually to think of it as just unconditional questioning. So that you're really not questioning about anything. So it's really totally open-ended. What is this? So anyway, you question for the sake of questioning. Because by questioning, you said something in the whole body-mind complex, which is different. Because generally we are more into affirming, commenting, defining. And this, in a way, is like an antidote to that. To have this unconditional, what is this? And then I would say, I see also a place for looking at it in a more uh, vipassana way, you could say, in terms of the mindfulness tradition. That if you've been done the mindfulness practice of the breath or whatever, then you're aware of different things and then you often can use it in that way. There is a thought, what is this? There is a sensation. What is this? But not to, again, analyze it or define it, but more to be more in contact with it. And often what happens with that, especially with thought, you say, what is this? And it's nearly like an antidote to thought, and then they just disappear. But then with some people, you have a thought, you say, what is this? And then you proliferate. <laughs> so you have to see, you know, is it helpful or not? So I would see it in these three different ways, and then it's for us which way actually seems to help us more at any given time. Yes? I understood the question yesterday when you said there was emptiness in the stick. The emptiness is the question. So, you know, the, the, 
we are very close to all the things that affect us and, and the, the question produces a little gap, a space between that that interferes with us. So it's like the stick, it's like the emptiness. And it, it gives you a space, it gives you a freedom from things. So, you know, it's funny how little things can trigger this understanding. I think this is one of the ideas. One of the ideas is that by questioning, you're actually doing something a little different in a way. And through doing that, you create that space. Or you create the possibility of a space. And over time, I would say you create the possibility of the space, which gives you the possibility of a creative choice. <coughs> and so I think the, the, it all follows from. Yes? I've been a shallow breather my whole life. And when I'm watching my breath, I see this shallowness. But when I, um, I say it's on, I'm able to watch it, but if I, I feel like I should also lengthen it to relax more. But when I do that, then I feel like I'm, again, trying hard, as opposed to just watching it. Any suggestions? Well, you see, it's, it's for you to try out, you know. I mean, we all breathe in different ways, and so we can just observe whatever breathing without categorizing. That's one way. It's just a breath doing its thing. Then if you feel you would like to try to breathe longer, then you can try. If I try to breathe longer, does it help me to then breathe longer over time? Is breathing longer better or not? Or if I breathe longer intentionally, does it seem to set up something which is not helpful? So I think not to start with, if I do this, then it's like that, but more to start, okay, I can try and see, is it helpful or not? Is it helping me to be more stable and open, more quiet and clear? Does it help me to be more relaxed about my breath? Or am I kind of becoming a little <laughs> too caught <laughs> with being worried about it? So then it's kind of also playing with what is in the foreground and in the background. Because I don't know, you might breathe shallow, shallowly, but you're still alive. So you breathe <laughs> enough, obviously. <laughs> and you know, what is shallow compared to what? No, I think one has to be careful. People have different lung capacity or whatever it might be. So I think it's kind of also to play around. If I put the breath in the foreground, does it make me tense in some way? If I have the breath in the background, is it more helpful? And then I could have the question or the sound in the foreground. So I think he's kind of also playing with that. When it is in the front or just a little bit at the back, how can I, in a way, be with the breath or creatively engage with the breath? 
Personally, I have no idea if my breath is according to whatever. <laughs> I just breathe. I find um, if my breath gets so shallow that it's very hard to use, my sort of default meditation is just to use this good, good ho together with the breath. I know you haven't introduced that at all. You know, a mantra, a good ho. I mean, I've, this week I've been trying, of course, you know, you haven't introduced it, I've been trying to use the questions sort of in place of the, of the Buddha, but I certainly find that my, you know, sort of halfway through the meditation, my breath gets so shallow, it's not hardly usable sort of thing. This is, this is a thing. Personally, I think we have to be careful of thinking that, yes, we might have been recommended one object, the breath, we might be comfortable with it. And at the same time, I feel we don't need to just do that. Because each tool has a little different effect. And with the breath, a lot of people find that then it becomes, in a way, like fainter and fainter in some way. And then it's very hard to be aware of it because there is very little to be aware of. And that's why personally, of course, if you then find useful to do Budo, Budo, that's totally fine. But personally, I think it's also fine to then leave the breath in the background and maybe put something more obvious in the foreground. And that's what we'll introduce tomorrow, uh, the listening meditation, which we also find a very good meditation, which you also find in some text in the Zen tradition. So then one could, if the breath become a little too faint, one could just open to the sound, open to the sensation in the body, or combine with the question. So I think it's again, what can, as you have been practicing for a little while, is what work with what you've developed over time. <coughs> okay? Uh, quite often when I, when I ask the question, um, it's followed by a, a flicker of a, an image from the past, Different, different images from different times, and uh, and an emotion that goes with that. Um, and so, quite often, then I ask the question again, directed more specifically to that, that experience, and, and then it, it kind of dissolves and evaporates. Um, So that's what I've been practicing, and it, it sort of feels I'm not really sure it's going. Uh, yeah, you see, when you do the question, like when you do the breath on any other method, you, different people will have slightly different experience. And so some people sometimes have that, but not just with the question, but sometimes with the question that you have like images, or you can have like memories. And then Generally, with those, I would say, yes, you can do what is easiest to it and to see that it is on. I think the main thing would be not to become too entangled in the association with the image or with the memory. And then if you felt that it was becoming a little entangling, then I would just say to come back to the breath or come back to the sound. But you see, sometimes for a little while you have that, and then it stops. 
then you just have the questioning by itself and it doesn't have this reverberation effect. I think it depends. But as long, what, again, it's back to what I said before, as long as whatever happens, you still feel stable and open, that's what is important. If one starts to feel disturbed, then generally I would say come back to something quite stabilizing, like the breath, for example. Then, yes? Um, <clears throat> I like the sort of emphasis on embodiment. Um, I've been sort of kept, I've used to sort of keep the eyes closed, but I've had a couple of days I've had them open, and it seems to work better because it contacts you more with more of the outside with the, the world and the other kind of body. Whereas you, when you close your eyes, you seem to try to escape the body into something called the mind. This, so you get this dualistic kind of split between mind and body. So I like the, the idea of being embodied, you know, not just. So you see again it's how different people will respond differently. Some people sometimes feel just to to close their eyes will help them to be more quiet naturally, some people. Some other you close the eyes and you feel, as you said, disembodied. It's like you kind of feel floating. And so, and I think that's one of the reasons in the Zen tradition, they really want you to stay here. And so they want you to be kind of connected to being in the environment. Yeah, sure, sure. So I think, yes, if it works for you. Because it doesn't mean that everybody must open their eyes all the time, because sometimes you you can have another effect with the eyes open. If you have trouble with your eyes and you have the eyes open, you really must gaze. Because if you if you focus and sometimes you can have trouble with the eyes. So again, you have to see how it works for you and it suits you. But yeah, that that can be one effect of that. Okay, so then I wanted um unless there is something else? Yeah. Last night, um, Stephen mentioned um, the generation, along with the question, the generation of um, feelings of, of awe or you know, um, curiosity. And I was wondering whether there was, um, in the, the ordinary day-to-day activity, whether there was something that could assist that. I mean, it's quite hard to generate when we're so familiar with, with everything our world you know, take it for granted and I was wondering if there was some assistance, something else that could assist in that well you see partly I think partly the, the, the meditation, the questioning could do that because the questioning is not just for here, generally the idea is that you know you continue with the question when you eat when you work when you walk outside and so if you do it just time to time what is this? Then often it has that effect of opening you up to this moment instead of you know feeling like there is a screen. But I would say the mindfulness can have the same effect. And this is an experience you can do. You go for a walk, here for example, you go for a walk. And then as you go for a walk, you have the intention to be present. So you start, you're aware, you're really aware of what's happening. And then very quickly, often we go into thought, thinking about yesterday or something else, and you're not really there. 
I mean, you enough there that you walk in the right direction and you notice a car. But then stop and then look. And if you stop and you look really around you, suddenly it's like the colors are sharper. The, and then you think, oh, mindfulness is magic. Actually not. It's just we are fully there. And if you're fully there, you're fully there with the blueness of the color of the flower or the greenness of, the, of this or the coolness of the wind. So I think it's to have this um, kind of... I, I think we have to be careful with the word, like awe, wonderment, amazement, because, I mean, you can't be amazed all the time, you know? <laughs> Why, you know what I mean? One has to be a little careful. But, yeah, I would say to be sensitive, to be open, to be in contact with. And I think it's just the meditation can help per se to see that suddenly we go into often thought or emotion or we kind of get caught a little self in the selfie. And then if we become caught in that way, then it will be hard to see anything else. And then if you don't see things, you cannot be awed in a way. So it's kind of helping us to Oh, I am here. I am alive in this moment. I think one interesting way to, to, to think about this is sometimes we feel bored. You know, you sit in meditation or you, I don't know, you feel... And whenever, personally, I don't feel like that. Very, extremely rarely. Because personally, I think, you know, to come to me now, million years of evolution. You know, you have like kind of first you had the Big Bang and then you had the water come up and a little being coming out of the water and then you have, you know, all this and then you have the human being. And then you have me. And to be bored after this amazing history, I think really. Can we a bit like, oh yeah. It's amazing to be alive. So I think it's kind of also seeing but I think it has a lot to do with how I feel. If you feel, then it's very hard to be, in a way, curious, to be open. And it's coming back to what my teacher used to say. Your life rests upon a single breath. Can, be, can you be awake to that? I think it's very much about wakefulness. What is it that is going to make me wakeful? I'll talk a little more about this tomorrow night. I think that's what it's about. Okay, and I wanted to, to share with you uh, two quotes, because they are quotes from uh, the Korean Zen tradition, but from the Zen tradition, they come from uh, ancient text. But I think these two quotes express very well how there is this connection in terms of Samatha and Vipassana with all the different traditions. So, that's the first one. If one remains in deep calm without being aware, it means sinking into dullness. So what it says here, if one remains in deep calm without being aware, it means sinking into dullness. And if one remains aware without being calm, 
It means becoming entangled in one's thought. If one remains aware without being calm, it means becoming entangled in one's thought. If one is in a state of being neither aware nor calm, then one is not only entangled in thoughts, but also submerged by dullness. You might feel that time to time. <laughs> so what, is, what are they looking at here? They're looking at the two elements of quietness, stability, and openness, clar clarity, brightness. And actually when we do meditation, we're actually trying to balance, to equilibrate the two. If there is too much quietness, then actually we're going to become dark. I mean, it will be nice because everything is calm, but things might be too calm. And the Buddha said that too in the early text, that if there was too much calmness, then we, we're going to lose energy. So basically it's like we're trying to develop enough calmness so that there is this stability, but not too much, when it's kind of possibly taking some energy away or making us a little more dull. At the same time, if there is too much brightness, if there is too much energy, you could say, then you can become very entangled in your thought because there is all this thought and it's, if there is no calmness, it's kind of like you're going after every thought, after everything that is happening. So what we're trying to develop is actually both and we actually have to see sometime we might feel a little down so then we might need a little more energy. And that's why I think the what is this could come in. You could be with the breath, maybe it's a little too calm, and then you bring the what is this. What is this? And then it makes you brighter. Or you do the what is this, and actually it's too bright. It's too much kind of like agitating the thought. And if you don't have any calmness, it's going to be too much energy in the way. And then you need to equilibrate it. And of course, if there is no calmness and no brightness, then <laughs> not much is going on. But at the same time, to see that it happens, you know, sometimes, and it's kind of like, how can I see this different state? How can I accept that there are different states and different ways I'm going to feel when I meditate? And then seeing, learning over time, why do I need to bring here? I mean, once I did this long retreat, uh, a month retreat in silence with other people, and I could feel at time of the day, oh, I was so sleepy, I would sit, and it was like, I really, it was really hard to be awake. And then I found that the way to really wake myself up was actually to open the eyes wide, keep the head straight, look up toward the ceiling, and just say to me, who is sitting here? Who is sitting here? Who is listening? 
a little more kind of uh, brightly. And then I could come back to uh, the question combined with something else. So I think it's kind of also seeing what can help. And it's true that sometimes you can't help it. And so you feel a little dull, a little... And then if you wait with it, it also starts to lift. <coughs> so sometimes I think it's between doing something and sometimes it's staying with it until it passes. And I think this is for us to see what is possible to do. Then that's the other quote. Clear awareness and deep calm are beneficial. But clear awareness with delusion will not work. Deep calm and clear awareness are appropriate. But deep calm with absent-mindedness is not appropriate. How can any delusion arise if calm doesn't let in any distraction and awareness doesn't leave any room for unskillful thinking? And so here they point out what, the, what are the different uh, functions of these two elements of samatha and vipassana. So clear awareness with delusion with not work. So it's back to, you can have the mind which is bright, but if the, you see, you could have brightness, but is the brightness wise? Is the brightness skillful? As the Buddha, the Buddha was saying, in terms of thought, in terms of intention, are there thoughts of harmlessness? Are there thoughts of renunciation? Are there thoughts of non-ill will? So it's not just having no thought. I think we have to be careful there. But that it's what kind of thought, what kind of brightness. Because suddenly we can have lots of brightness and lots of idea, but in a way, is it beneficial? Is it wise? And so not to judge them, but to kind of see it kind of what kind of brightness it is, what kind of clarity it is. And then he said, but deep calm with absent-mindedness is not appropriate. It's back to the idea that, yes, meditation can help us to be calm. But this is not the only thing about it. This is only one aspect. If you have a deep calm, but the deep calm is not, doesn't have brightness, doesn't have awareness, doesn't have clarity, in a way you only have half of what is possible. And so that's why it's really pointing out you have these two elements of calm and brightness and how can they be some balance between the two. The two elements, the two components are essential. It is not just about inside, it is not just about being calm. It is the two coming together, the two being developed together. And then it says, how can any delusion arise if calm does not let in any distraction? And I think this is in a way the function of the concentration. Is actually over time, it's back to what I was saying yesterday, if we don't identify with all the thoughts that appear, it doesn't mean you don't have thought. 
It means that they arise and they pass. But if we identify, if we grasp, we'll get distracted by it. We'll go into proliferation around different identity, different non-identity, different different things. And so in a way, the calm is helping us to see that. Do I want to go in these different places which are not so useful? Or do I want to try to come back here and in a way cultivate, develop an identity which is in a way more stable and spacious here? So the calm, the coming back, the trying to be here some of the time is really about that. It's really to, to, to see that, yes, we can go off, we have thought. And so I think it's very important to see calm does not necessarily mean you have no thought. So it's like it, it doesn't mean that the brain is going to be stopped. The function of the brain is not stopping. But the proliferation with the identification that over time can be dissolved. So I think it's very important to see that so, thoughts are just activity of the being, of the brain. It's just a little bit of electricity. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, what if? That would be a good experience. What if we sit in the evening and while we sit for 30 minutes, somebody is clicking the light every second? <laughs> I mean, it would feel a bit strange, you know, to just click light on, light off, light on, light off, light on, light off. And in a way, this is a little what happened with our thought. They're on, but I mean, do, do they have to be on all the time? I mean, they come, they go, they come, they go. Do we have to do anything with it? This is what is interesting in meditation, is that it's not that we're trying to stop thought. It's more that we're trying to dissolve the tendency we have to identify with them. So we can still have a thought, but if we don't do anything with it, it doesn't go very far. And it comes and we come back here. So I think in a way, seeing the difference. Like there is a a quote in the Zen tradition from the Sixth Patriarch, which say it says, No mind is a mind without attachment but which, which see widely. So no mind doesn't mean there is no thought. No mind means that the thought, we're not attached to them. So they still thought, but they can arise, and that's what the calm is about. They can arise within space, more space, and then we'll stick less. So we're basically creating, developing space over time. So you can have a thought, which less immediately, I have to think this. This is me. If I don't think it, I mean, basically the question is, if I don't think it, do you not exist? Well, I think often that's what we think. If I think, I mean, therefore I am. <laughs> but can we have a thought and it comes back down? And it doesn't say much about us existing or not existing. 
So it's kind of playing with that element. And then the other one, an awareness doesn't leave any room for unskillful thinking. So it's again, we're not trying to stop all thinking, but we're trying to actually have more awareness of what do I think? How do I think? Is it helpful or not? Do I need to continue to think in this way? And so it's trying to have more freedom. And I think this is what happens, is that over time, sometimes you sit in meditation and you have a very good idea. And so you can be with your very good, insightful idea until that stops. And then you come back to be here with the breath, the question, or the sound. So it's kind of like, in a way, but to see that sometimes you have ideas, you have a thought, and then from this tiny thought, you can three minutes later be in a very dark place. That's what is kind of, we have to, the Buddha is saying. It's like, I mean, uh, sometimes we have a, interesting relationship to waiting you know, waiting 10 o'clock mm. he or she is not here 10 past 10 he does not he, she does not love me 10, 20 <laughs> nobody loves me <laughs> 10, 30 I hate the world <laughs> so you have one thing and then quickly you can proliferate with it. And personally, generally, I fall. And they say, oh, I thought it was next week. And I feel great. Now I have time to do something else. <laughs> so it's just to see. You know, it's kind of to see. That's what one of the things in the Buddha, the Buddha in an ancient sutta, he says, beware of the danger of the thought. doesn't mean all thoughts are dangerous. But some thoughts are dangerous. And in a way, it's kind of like, if you are on a cliff and there is, you know, a danger sign, do you think, oh, great, let's go? Or do you think, okay, <laughs> possibly not? <laughs> it's a bit the same here. If we get to know our thought, it's like, hmm, do I want to go back there? You know, I mean, it doesn't mean that you will never go back there. Of course, at times we can't help ourselves. And we go back there. But we don't have to go back there more of the time than we need to. I think it's finding that space. So in a way, as we sit here, as we walk, as we go about our day, it's really trying to develop these two qualities of stability, calmness, and brightness, and creative awareness. So that's what we're doing here. Any questions or comments? Um, wasn't it um, Christian Murthy said, you know, thought is so dangerous because it's so much based on just incomplete information. It's just based on partial information. And there are many, I think he extended that to religion in general. But, I mean, um, so that the, the proliferation is based, like in your example of being sort of kept waiting, you know, there's so many factors which could be the cause of that, which you're completely unaware of. So that's the sort of uh, the danger of you know the danger of thought generally. Well, you see, I would not 
said, just thought, this was just as an example, because personally, I would say, with the waiting, the, the danger was actually not with the thought. The danger was with the feeling tone. The Buddha often talks about Vedana, V-D-A-N-A, and it's the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And what I would think happened with waiting is that when we wait, an unpleasant feeling tone is created. And then we react to the unpleasant feeling tone with the thought, then the thought and the feeling tone compound each other and then off we go. But it's true. Often with the thought, we will only have partial information that can also be true. Okay, shall, shall we do it? Okay.